Hello and welcome to Immigrantly, the podcast that delves into the heart of honest and unadulterated conversations. I am your host, Sadia Khan. I hope all of you are well and that you checked out our latest brand new podcast called Banterly. My name is Aditi. And I'm Aiden. And this is Banterly. Banterly is focused on Gen Z, but anybody out there can listen to it. It's an incredible podcast that showcases pop culture critique through comedic lens done by two amazing Gen Zers. Anyways, back to our today's conversation. Now, in a world where loneliness takes a toll on our physical and mental well-being, especially being in an individualistic society, the quest for meaningful connections becomes important. Whether we are solidifying family ties or seeking companions who offer stability, love and tranquility, the pursuit is undoubtedly universal. But how does reality match? with expectations? How does this quest transform when elements like AI and money come into play? Our today's guest will explore the intersection between love, technology, and wealth. I am so excited to introduce Kasindi Chow, who is a matchmaker located in the Bay Area, California. Her work with matchmaking started all the way back when she was a student at Wellesley College. Now, after quitting a job in finance, she works full-time as a matchmaker, primarily focused on the Asian community. I'm so excited to speak with her today about her process the requests she goes through, and the future of matchmaking with the rise of AI. So let's get started. I am so excited to have you on Immigrantly Kasindi. This is wonderful. And we are in the new year, 2024. Wow. I know. 2024 after 2023. What a year that was, right? Are you a resolutions person? I am, but I don't always follow it. So my resolution is to follow my resolution. (laughs) (laughs) So other than following your resolution, do you have any other resolutions for 2024? I do. And one of the resolutions is to delegate, which is really hard for many immigrant women, or at least Asian immigrant women, I believe, to not have to be an expert on everything. Why do you think it's hard? Well, I think a lot of it is kind of expectations growing up, at least in the you know Chinese American households. And I believe this is relatively universal too. There's a lot of work that's put on women. If you look at the complementary terms for women, they're like, oh, diligent, hardworking, humble, you know, all these things. <laughs> like, ah, and it's hard, right? Because we got to do all the work, no accolades, 
you're not even allowed to brag about yourself because then in Chinese phrases, it's like you're putting gold pieces on your face and people laugh at that. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I thought that was only in Pakistani culture. Yeah. You're supposed to be humble. You cannot brag about anything. Yes. Anything that you do. You just got to keep on working. But it doesn't work in the US, does it? No, because then you don't get promoted. You don't get a raise. It's in so many ways you lose out. And then as a teenager watching this, you feel kind of resentful. That's true. So talk to me about your childhood. Oh, um, I had a wonderful childhood. I My parents immigrated from Taiwan and we lived on both coasts. I grew up originally in Rochester, New York, and my dad got recruited for a job. So moved to LA and then grew up there and we kind of climbed up the socioeconomic ladder. You know, I started out getting spit at actually. Hmm. Chinese, Japanese, dirty knees, look at these. But you know, we, my, my parents worked hard and we ended up living in a very, very nice suburb and it was fun. But coming to college was a cultural shock, right? Because we had been very much in a kind of an Asian household and I was so curious about anything Western. So what was the college experience like? Oh, so I went to a woman's college because that was a college that my parents would approve of. I went to Wellesley, which was a transformative experience. I still talk to my freshman roommate like every week, decades later. Hmm. It was eye-opening. You know, I learned more about dating, about being a strong female, being able to be a leader of a group versus always being the secretary or the vice president of a group. You know, it was transformative. I made my best friends there. Cindy, talking about matchmaking, you started matchmaking in college. Yes. It's so fascinating because you're probably the first matchmaker I've ever interviewed. Oh, really? Yeah, I've never interviewed a matchmaker. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I always joke, I go, where are you going to find a matchmaker that's Wellesley College educated, former Goldman Sachs banker, you know, who's now matchmaking? And I think Despite my parents, they wanted me to be a scientist. I didn't do that well. I guess the bug really hit me in college. I was very sociable, really just out there to learn new things and to meet new people. I was so excited. And they said, oh, you could be the social chair. And we did this thing called the Asian Association Blind Date Semi-Formal. And oh my goodness, Sadia, it was transformative. Huh. I had so much fun matching people. Imagine like hundreds of people. It was so much fun. What was the most interesting part about matching people? I think talking to each one of them. I caught every single person that was on my list and interviewed them. What do you mean by interview them? So the goal is we would match 60 women and 60 men. Hmm. And so there needs to be some sort of parameter for matching them. You know, one could just match them on site, but I decided that I was going to call every single person to match them or meet them. And I did. And I caught each one of them, asked them some questions. And they're very dumb questions back then that I used for matching was their age and their, you know, what, what college year, but also looked about their interests. I even asked what was their favorite breakfast cereal and why. Why not? I know, right? Why not? <laughs> And I did that. But what was really neat about it is I could remember about it. And even now, there are some people on my Facebook groups and LinkedIn that remember me from those days when I called them and interviewed them. So, Cassindy, you go from that to Goldman Sachs and you have these corporate jobs. And then 
you transition into matchmaking. So the journey to matchmaking is not linear, but you end up being a matchmaker. Why matchmaking? It took a lot of failure and great jobs and great careers to come back to matchmaking and also acceptance of my own self for who I am. You know, back then for Asian immigrants, it was all about getting a job that could pay the bills. My parents were both laid off in their defense contracting jobs back when I was graduating. And so economically, it was really hard. So I needed a job that paid. And back then, investment banking was the way to go. I had started off at Bear Stearns and worked myself to JP Morgan and then later on to Goldman. But the reality is I stink at finance. I am the worst person at finance. I would never hire myself because I am mistake prone. I just don't, <laughs> looking back now, I don't know. But yeah, obviously I worked really hard, but it wasn't natural to me. I had to work really, really hard just to be a reasonable analyst and then associate and then vice president. I mean, it's not that bad. I still thrived, but I just, the numbers never sang for me. Right. And now you're a great matchmaker. Let's talk about that. Tell me about the people who come to you for help. What does a typical client ask for? Oh, goodness. <laughs> there are no typical clients, but there's typical clients by groupings. So, for example, because I'm also a professional woman, a lot of professional women gravitate towards me. And one of the, the commonalities that comes a lot for, let's just say, women over the age of 40 is that, oh, I'm looking for a great man. Aren't we all? Yes. <laughs> well, we are looking for great men, but great men come in different sizes and shapes. Right. But what they'll say is, tall, wealthy, really smart, because I want to learn from them as well, and really caring, right? So that's kind of a very common theme. Because I am curious to know, what do you tell them? Ah, I tell them a lot of things. It depends. Right? One, I tell them is to be open-minded because love comes in many sizes and shapes. Two, I do the three-date rule, right? So I try to say like, look, you may not like this person on the first date, but maybe they're two inches shorter than what you thought, but let's look into who they are inside versus what they are outside, right? Huh. And then another thing, but this comes later on because a lot of people, it's hard to accept certain realities at a certain time. But the reality is this, is that women, because we are professional, we work so hard, a lot of economic power is now more and more in the hands of women. So it is not always going to be a situation where you find a man who's going to whisk you off your feet, who's wealthy and intelligent and willing to date age appropriately. But there's also some great men who are, I would say, not as alpha, but would be great husbands, great partners, so supportive, so loving that are there too, that frankly, I think are better because they won't crush your soul. But, you know, it takes time because people don't want to hear that right away. They, they're still looking. They're still looking for the for the fairy tale prince to come whisk them away and 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 then take them to to some fancy vacation. You know, and all expenses paid. <laughs> oh my gosh! I thought we had moved on from that. No, we haven't. But we are still stuck there. Look at the media, right? The media does that. That's so true. Walk me through the process. What are some of the first steps? So my process is a little different. Every matchmaker is really different. But what I do is because I come from a immigrant family that's big, I'm very into just talking to people. 
So what I do is I will ask them, I'll say, hey, I would love to talk to three to five of your friends and family because they would know your blind spots. The most intelligent people have the biggest blind spots. So I would love to talk to them. And some will, some won't. And some will give me up to seven people. And then I talk to their girlfriends. I even talk to ex-husbands. I will talk to fathers and sons, depends. And then I ask them, like, who do you think would be a great match for the client? And what do you think are their blind spots? And the information I get is very, very helpful. Hmm. Oh, too picky, but too picky because they're scared, right? And there's a lot of issues that come out. I mean, think about it. We all have friends that are single. We would love to help them, but we're kind of scared to tell them to kind of know why they're single. So if we could be helpful there, that's where matchmaker comes in. It's very neutral. And then what I do is I try to do a, a mock date. And that's kind of a practice date with a safe person that's within my database. Oh. And we provide a little bit of feedback, right? And then once we have that feedback, then I put together a plan for the client. I might say, okay, so I've talked to your friends and family. We've done the mock date. I've done my deep dive interview with you. So now I have a plan. And then I always give compliments and maybe with the comment kind of sandwiched in between. <laughs> I like that. And I might say, well, the, the comments came out that you're really picky. And let's tease that one apart because sometimes the picky comes from a place of fear. Like, oh, if I don't marry a person with a Ivy League pedigree, then I'll be embarrassed, right? And we'll parse that out. Why is that so important? For example, I'm just using that as an example. And then I go, okay, now I'm going to have you do a, I call it something like a dating trio. I'll put them out on three dates with three different types of people. And I go, look, these are not your true matches. I just want to test how you feel when you meet these three people. And one person might be, let's just say a professor who doesn't earn that much money, but is very nice and smart, right? Or somebody might be a chef or somebody might also be that kind of lawyer or, you know, you know, white collar professional, whatever we we choose three depends on the time and the location. And then we do a lot of surveys and feedback to see, well, how did it feel? What did you like? What did you not like? Right. And that kind of helped people kind of see versus me telling them because they might not hear it, but for them to kind of see what worked and what didn't work. That's so smart because indeed, is there a typical date you always recommend for people? There's no typical date, but I do say quite often it's good to do short dates, right? Because sometimes we know really quickly whether there's chemistry or not. Sometimes I say, you know, a good way, you know, is to go out for a frozen yogurt or an ice cream. That's quick. (laughs) You don't have to sit through a full dinner. (laughs) But again, it depends. I mean, I have clients that are, oh my gosh, like the youngest is 28 and I've gone even all the way up to 80. Oh, I know. I, I never went that old. I'm like, my goodness, <laughs> the son hired me. <laughs> I was going to ask you if there is a breakdown by gender and age. So generally my database is probably, I'd say about 60% female, 40% men. But the breakdown is very different, obviously, for age. So for example, there's a lot more younger men and there's some older, older men, but they're in between tends to be more female skewed. And are there any other gender identities other than those who identify as male or female? So my specialization, because every matchmaker has their niches, right? If you can go to like Tammy Shakely for the LGBTQ crowd, I actually have worked 
but it's more like more coaching, right? Versus matchmaking, just because my database isn't going to be as strong there. You know, in fact, I traded dates uh, with a wonderful lesbian queer poet who wrote the copy for my website in the beginning, (laughs) for example. Finding a partner has a lot of layers outside romance. People are looking for moral compatibility. They are looking for maybe religious, educational, as you mentioned. And sometimes it's even upward mobility, right? Whether social or otherwise. Do you think people are looking more to create those family dynamics where they can reproduce their wealth and status? Or is that always second to finding love? That is a million dollar question. So I think those are probably two streams that are people, people all have a balance in their own head of what they want. There's a Chinese phrase called mendang hu dui, which means the windows and the doors need to match, hmm. right? Because, you know, there's matchmakers in Chinese culture long time ago, and it was all about matching the right families, the socioeconomic class versus compatibility. I think that, you know, since I specialize very much in Asian American culture in the U.S., there's much more emphasis on love and chemistry. Huh. Uh, but the parents, right, because a lot of the Asian immigrants were all close to our families, our parents are still putting pressure on us for that mobility, you know, because it's all about like wealth means stability. Wealth means, you know, you have a place in the country, right? So there's still that pressure of upward mobility, which is not necessarily compatible with finding true passion, true love, you know, not always. There is a two streams kind of passing through each other and people each trying to balance it in their own hearts, what matters the most to them. Have there been moments that made you think differently about what people want versus what they need? Oh, yes, all the time. How do you parse it out for them? Well, it's really interesting. A lot of professional women sometimes don't want to have it parsed out because they feel that they've been so strong in their own career. So they know it. They know it all. (laughs) Do they? They don't. And I myself had that mistake too. I think sometimes we're so proud about our accomplishments, our hard-won accomplishments as Asian females that we sometimes forget that there's things that we need to support our soul, to help us continue to grow and expand and thrive. And so we, we might think that we want the Ivy League educated, wealthy financial banker to round out our resume. But that person is not going to be the most supportive of your own career. That person wants a traditional wife. So it's not what you need. What you need is somebody who is your cheerleader, who thrives, who holds you when you come back from a tired day, who just loves you for you unconditionally. That's what would make you thrive. But quite often, we're not looking for that because we don't want that, even though we need it. Cindy, sometimes I feel like we put so many expectations on one person, right? We want them to be loving, caring, educated, wealthy, understanding. We should have chemistry with them. We should love them. Do you think that it's unfair? Ha! Huh. <laughs> that is, again, a great question because not everybody can be everything all at once. And there are ebbs and flows. Relationships are not linear. People go through phases, cycles. But again, going back to what Hollywood portrays and how Hollywood defines love is unrealistic. On your own, 
I have to go back to work. You look great. She has my card. And we'll help her use it, sir. You know, you're absolutely correct there. It is unrealistic. It's unrealistic and sometimes unhealthy because we're questing for unattainable. You know, just like with our friends, not all of our best friends cover every aspect of our needs and, and wants. Having said that, I do think there are two factors I think are important is chemistry and respect. I think every great relationship has chemistry and respect. Define chemistry for me. Chemistry is is not just like sexual, but also like I like being around this person. You know, I enjoy being together with them. Friendship, maybe? Yeah, friendship is fine too. Absolutely. Like it's somebody that you you trust, right? And respect is important because there's so many factors in marriage and life that we could kind of fall off the path, we can diverge, but we respect the person too much to treat them badly. And so I think those two factors are important. Also, we're all evolving as people, right? I'm evolving, you're evolving, we're all evolving. So you want somebody who respects you and wants your happiness and is willing to evolve with you just as you're willing to, in theory, evolve with them. Absolutely. Are there any particular things that you're wary of, that you warn your clients against? Or are there any red flags in relationships that you warn your clients against? Oh, well, there's so many red flags. <laughs> you know, again, it depends on the client and what they're looking for. I do have some clients who come in who are very, you know, superficial and all they want are just the check marks and they're willing to put up with it. As a matchmaker, I can make suggestions all I want, but at the end of the day, it's really the client is the one living with this person and making the decision. There's something else that I've been thinking about. And as I was prepping for this interview, I thought I'll ask you now in the age of social media, Instagram and TikTok, digital alteration is easier than ever, right? Yes. We see ourselves through filtered lens. We see ourselves a lot, especially during pandemic, when people were on Zoom almost eight to 10 hours a day, they got used to looking at themselves. Yes. There is this self-obsession, almost narcissism around looking at ourselves. How has that impacted how people look for partners? Have you seen any noticeable differences in your clients? Because the way they look at themselves is not realistic. And maybe that manifests into how they want their partners to be. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. So we have a saying in matchmaking that everybody's a five, right? Life is average, right? Everybody's a five who thinks they're a seven, <laughs> who wants to date a 10. And the self-awareness is quite limited. AI makes it very, very tricky, right? Everything, you can put lipstick on yourself, you could straighten out your complexion. Everything is so appearance conscious. And it's hard because I've had situations where the client goes on a date and vice versa. And they're like, well, you're not the way you look like on your Instagram handle. Oh my gosh. But there's a reality, right? You're not living with the poster. It is difficult because people have wrinkles, people have beauty marks. So it is very superficial and people want to be, be seen with someone that is Instagrammable, but that's not living together. That's just showing off, right? And it's very dangerous. I think social media in that respect sometimes can be very unhealthy because it, again, leads up to unrealistic expectations. How do you counteract that? Do you have conversations with your clients? Do you sit them down and say, look, you're just being unreasonable here. 
or do you let them just discover it on their own? Um, it depends again on the, on the client, right? Because they, in their heart of hearts, probably know that. They just don't want to be told that, right? And I think that's the hard thing too, is how to disseminate advice, right? So I did have a gentleman who was so picky, 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 you know, and I had wonderful dates, but they all weren't good looking enough. And the pictures he shared with what he was looking for was, were pretty unrealistic. <laughs> However, I did find somebody who was very pretty. And the good news is she was awful. <laughs> I mean, not that we knew in the beginning, but basically was high maintenance, difficult. And she was a 10, huh. definitely 10, but she knew it. She had, she had pictures, but she was not a very nice person and would yell at him and treat him poorly. So you're seeing 10 physically. She was really, really, really pretty, but just a piece of work, you know, very demanding <laughs> and made him take her to a, a special sushi restaurant that she had wanted to go to, but then didn't like it. So then like that night he blew like hundreds and hundreds of dollars. And I felt bad. I told him like, you don't have to do this, but you know, he was enamored and wanted to try. Right. So, okay, fine. If this is what you want to do. I'm not going to stop you. Right. Go to town. But I think after he got off that infatuation, he's like, oh, I don't want to talk to her anymore. So I had to talk to her and go, look, no more. And then I found him somebody who is still, I think, really beautiful, uh, maybe a nine. And definitely, I think, I, as a matchmaker, you always help your clients date up. I mean, I, I help them love, level up, but not, you know, but not as hot, hot. But I think they're very excited for each other. So, you know, it just takes time. Sometimes you have to show, not tell. Kisini, does it sometimes bother you how shallow matchmaking is and how far off from reality it is in some ways? You know, of course it bothers me because it makes me sad about average people who are just great matches, who sometimes have a hard time, you know, matching well. But generally, I feel that with most of my clients, over time, we get into a good space. They may start off demanding certain requirements, but I think usually by the time we get to the end of the process, I usually get them to date better than they would have dated on their own, for sure. Hmm. I'm always able to find dates that they would not have been able to meet on their own. And usually I feel relatively satisfied at the end of the process. But sometimes that process takes longer than one wants. <laughs> That's for sure. Do you think dating and then marriage eventually is more transactional than we would like to think? Ah, good question. It is because there's a financial calculus, there's a social calculus that goes into it because it's not just about infatuation, but also about, well, how does this person fit into my lifestyle or I fit into their lifestyle? So yes, there is a financial calculus at the end of it. Um, and it, there is a transaction because you are effectively investing your life with someone and them with you. Um, so there is that. So there's not some sort of fairy tale, like, oh my gosh, you just fell in love. And then just, oh my gosh, swept me off my feet. <laughs> that swept me off the feet doesn't last that long. But I see a lot of people shy away from recognizing that, right? There is this reticence, almost ignorance around what marriage or matchmaking dating entails. Why do you think that is the case? Well, that's also the media. I mean, the media doesn't necessarily celebrate a more realistic version of marriage. 
right? The media celebrates all sorts of fantasies, right? Mr. and Mrs. Smith, contract killers by day or whatever, and that assassins by day and then, you know, marriage by night. I mean, it's all these unrealistic expectations in, in the media. So I do think that's not correct. And also you look at all the old Disney movies, right? About Snow White and all the princesses. Yeah, I know things are shifting, but you still have a lot of old ideals still held very, very firmly and entrenched. That is the expectation of what a great romantic relationship is. You know, you rarely see a celebration of, wow, they raised three kids that did fine. Right? <laughs> that, that's boring. You know, like I'm sure people would look at my marriage and yours and go, oh, that's not exciting. Why are people always craving excitement? Well, I think sometimes it's a diversion. It's it's a it's a way to sort of not necessarily work on yourself. Hmm. You can look at something else like, oh, well, that, that romance adventure, and then not necessarily take the time to work on your own growth, your own self, your own happiness, your own fairy tale that you create for yourself. At the end of the day, we have to lean into our own selves more, but it's easy to distract it by, by looking out, outward instead. Always looking for something better, right? Yes. Cindy, you have so many advice columns on your website as well, from empowerment to setting boundaries. But there is one that caught my attention, and this was differences between Asian and white men, along with many subsections exploring stereotypes and experiences dating interracially. Yes. Why did you feel the need to expand on this specific form of interracial relationships? As I was getting trained to be a matchmaker, I went through some training and worked with other matchmakers. And a comment came to me that really bothered the heck out of me. And it was, Cassindy, if you have a short Asian gentleman, you have to charge three times to get that person matched. And that really bothered the heck out of me. I thought a lot about that because it made me really sad. I have sons, right? And also my Asian siblings. And it made me really kind of sad. And it stuck with me for years about this. And I started looking into this, talked to my friends. And it was like all about the stereotypes. And, you know, you look at Eddie Murphy, right? Making fun of Asians. You look at the 16 Candles. And it just bothered me. And I really feel like it's important over time that we're now, you know, that Asian men are actually, I call the dating trifecta. Hmm. I mean, where are you going to find somebody who's, you want smart? I've got smart generally. Okay, I mean, it's not stereotyping, <laughs> but generally quite smart. If their if their moms and dads did a good job, right? They're generally smart. They're generally financially responsible, and they're family oriented, and they're cute. I mean, like, so I was kind of saying, like, what's not to like, right? But stereotypes have made it really hard for for that. And I think in the past, there's been this whole thing about like, oh, a lot of Asian women dating white men. And there's pros and cons there. So I sometimes have people come in, they're like, you know, Asian fever. I'm like, no, 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 no. If you only, only want to date only Asian women, that's it. Then maybe I'm not the right matchmaker for you. Um, if you dated both and you, you know, then, then fine, you know, then, then I can talk. Talk to me about some of the stereotypes that are reinforced through matchmaking. You've talked about stereotypes around Asian men. What are some of the other stereotypes that you've noticed are reinforced through the process? You know, there, there's a stereotype of wealthy men dating hot women that are at least 15 years younger. And I get them as well. What do you tell them? 
well, <laughs> and again, it's hard to tell them because I think that what this is what they want. But again, I just have to show, not tell, yeah. right? And the reality is, do I have beautiful women who are willing to date a lot older in my, in my Rolodex, my database? Yes, I do. And for some of them, it's a, it's a social contract that they're willing to do, right? And so I can't necessarily judge that, but I do see that a lot. Why do you think that happens? Well, it's also ego, right? Again, it goes into like a man's comfort level with themselves. Maybe they're having issues with their own age and wanting to be young, right? And feeling like, oh, I'm, I'm, in, my mid, I'm in my 50s right now, but I really look like I'm in my 40s. So I really should be dating somebody in their 20s. It all goes back down to their own, what's inside of them, right? And their own insecurities. And I think for some men with certain insecurities, they want to date somebody really gorgeous. It feels good for them. It makes them feel proud. You know, and there's no judgment there, but I do feel sad sometimes because I hope that they can find their happiness, right? I had a client, he was a billionaire, did really, really well. And, you know, there's this gorgeous former model chasing him. It didn't last. In the end, he went back to his wife, which was great. <laughs> so you've seen it all, Kisindi, all sorts of experiences and things, right? I have, I have. And and no judgment, no judgment. right? <laughs> I'm going to bring something else into the mix. Now, we've seen AI. The future of AI holds possibilities of potentially creating a partner. Now, the movie her released in, what, 2013, followed a man who fell in love with his AI assistant. You feel real to me, Samantha. Thank you, Theodore. That means a lot to me. I wish you were in this room with me right now. I should put my arms around you. I wish I could touch you. I honestly didn't even watch the movie because I was like, ah, it's never going to happen. But it seems like it is going to happen, right? Yes. So how will romantic relationships evolve in the age of AI? So, Sadia, regarding AI, it is. I think quite dangerous to human relationships in the sense that it's very easy to to fall in love with a fictional character. And then that also stunts people in terms of their own emotional learning. Hmm. Right? Because if you're conversing with a fictional character, that's that's all you learn. And the feedback responses you get are always going to be positive. So you, you could say mean things and the AI could be like, oh, that's wonderful. So basically it I think it stunts social growth. And I'm concerned about that. For example, even with online dating with, with people that come from, I always say the number one goal is get off the apps and meet the person in real life. Hmm. Wrinkles and all, right? <laughs> Warts and all, right? Messy hair and all, because you still have to live with them. But yeah, I think there is a danger there. there there's a, you know, just like you had said earlier about is a spouse need to cover every aspect of our social you know, needs. Not necessarily, right? People now, you know, friends can cover that. But now if you add in another slice for AI friends, that's interesting. That is a new avenue that we haven't really explored much, right? And I think that's dangerous because then we end up going into this fantasy world that will that is so much more exciting than reality. And so I think then you might end up shirking a lot of our own responsibilities. You can't really bring up kids using 
AI like that, a kid needs their parent, a real parent, not an AI parent. Mm. I'm concerned about it. Is there anything about AI that you're hopeful for? Because in an individualistic society like the U.S., a lot of people are lonely. Yeah. Right. And they do need companionship and they don't get that companionship. So is there any hope in AI for people who cannot find partners or companions in real life? Yes. You know, for example, the elderly, right? The elderly can be very isolated and very lonely. And having somebody who's almost like a friend is nice because especially in the U.S., you know, you look at these these scams, a lot of elderly are scammed because they're lonely. Right. They have nobody to talk to. So if you had somebody safe for them to talk to, that might at least alleviate some of their day-to-day loneliness. I think used responsibly and applied responsibly, right? As long as the AI is not saying here... I have, a crypto, I have a crypto scam. Come and in, come invest my money. Right? Invest your money in here, right? <laughs> but yeah, no, if, you know, gosh, you know, it's so funny that you mentioned this because I was joking about this with my sister. Uh, I was thinking, oh, wouldn't it be nice to find somebody to talk to, talk to dad? You know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> whatever he wants to <laughs> listen to all of his stories. <laughs> so there is some upside to it. Yes, and I think it's it's really dependent upon how we control and how we use AI, right? If there's guardrails. Yes, absolutely. I think this is the reality. You know, we have to be very realistic and that this technology, this powerful technology is out there and how do we harness it for effective use versus nefarious purposes? And this technology is here to stay, Yes. right? So how do we use it? As you said, how do we harness it? How do we learn about it? It's so, so crucial. Are there any tips any advice that you have for people who are looking for a partner, a companion, something that you've learned through matchmaking? I'll give one that I gave for the immigrant community. And the reason why I think this is a useful piece of advice is that it's relevant directly to us because for a lot of us, we code switch, meaning that we want to fit in so well into American society that we are like extra American, extra this, extra that, just to kind of show how we belong. But because we are code switching so often and sometimes subconsciously, that, that might hurt us when it comes to meeting the true love of our life. Somebody who, who understands us, I think that's important. So I think that it's really important to open your eyes when you're meeting somebody as a partner and to kind of take down the code switching because if you aren't showing the other person your true self, you're attracting them to a different you. Yeah. A good relationship is about feeling safe and being who you really are versus what you're just kind of putting out there in the world just to fit in. Absolutely. That's such great advice. And that applies to everyone, right? Irrespective of their background or whether they have any connection to immigrant identity or not. That's true. In the end, If you were to define the United States of America through matchmaking lens, through love and relationships, how would you do that? I would say a frazzled bundle of contradictions, ultimately with a heart of gold and trying to do the right thing. (laughs) Thank you so much. This was so good. And we were finally able to do this interview. I am so glad that we connected. And we had this incredible conversation. It was so much fun. Sadia, I enjoyed your very, very insightful questions. And I just really want to say thank you so much. 
Um, and I'm glad that you've now met another matchmaker or a matchmaker. <laughs> and I love bringing people together for love, for sure. was a fun conversation, right? I would love to hear from all of you. So if there is anybody out there who's looking for love or a matchmaker or is a matchmaker, would love, love, love to hear your thoughts. You can always write to me at sadia at immigrantlypod.com. And if you don't like to write emails, you can always send me a voice memo. Just sit in a quiet place share a few thoughts, and who knows, we may share those on one of our upcoming podcasts. This episode was produced by me, Sadia Khan, written by Bobak Afshari and me. The editorial review is done by Shay Yu. Our editor for this episode is Hazik Ahmed Farid. The music for Immigrantly is done by Simon Hutchinson. Come back next week when we have another incredible guest. Take care and be kind to yourself.